Welcome to the Garden Angelus, where we talk about flowers, veggies, and all the best dirt. I'm Dee Nash from Guthrie, Oklahoma. And I'm Carol Michael from Indianapolis, Indiana. We call ourselves Garden Angelus because we are evangelists for gardening. We love gardening and we want others to love it too. Yes, we do. We are also authors and invite you to check out our books, including my book, The 2030-Something Garden Guide, A No-Fuss down and dirty gardening 101 for anyone who wants to grow stuff is that a mouthful or what and my books included potted and pruned homegrown and handpicked and seeded and sodded my trilogy of gardening humor you can ask for any of our books at your local bookstore or find them online wherever books are sold Speaking of online, you can also find us as The Garden Angelus on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and Pinterest, and we'd love for you to join our Facebook group, The Garden Angelus Garden Club. People are already sharing on there. And now on to this week's episode. Did you see what I shared on The Garden Angelus Garden Club Facebook page this weekend? Honestly, I don't know. I had a whirlwind weekend, Carol. Well, my sister called me or texted me, I think it was... Friday, and she wanted my help to buy some houseplants, and so I said, okay. Oh, I did know that, because you also shared a picture of her on your Instagram story, right? I did. She wanted to buy some houseplants, because she's listened to our podcast. It's got her interested in gardening, because she's the sister who doesn't garden. And guess what I bought when she was buying houseplants? I hope I know. What did you buy, Carol? I bought a Chinese evergreen. A red Chinese evergreen. Red Valentine. Woohoo! I have red Valentine. I love it. It is beautiful. And so, whereas in the 60s it might have been the world's dullest houseplant, I'll tell you what, in the 21st century, those varieties knock your socks off. In fact, at the, is it the Tropical Plant International Expo, TPIE, I may not have that exact name right, but down in Florida, they just had it. Did you see where they shared an aglaonema that was camo? I wanted it immediately. So did I, and I don't even like camo, but I wanted it. And I know why you wanted it, because it was many shades of green. Exactly. We will watch for that to come out on the market and try to be the first to get it. And then let everyone else know. So what are we talking about today? Well, I'm going to give you a quote and then you can tell me. Oh, okay. Ready? Yep. Don't judge each day by the harvest you reap, but by the seeds that you plant. Robert Louis Stevenson. Well, since this is our flower segment and it had the word seeds in it, I'm going to guess that we're talking about flowers that you can direct sow. And for people who don't know what direct sow means, because it's kind of a weird word, it means planting seeds directly in the garden, no having to start them inside, world's easiest flower garden for full sun. Right. You sow them exactly where you want them to grow. And there are a ton of great flowers, annual flowers that you can grow. Marigolds, Zinnias, Cosmos, Sunflowers, Bachelor's Buttons, Celosia. Yeah. I was trying to think if there was any other flower, but I can't think of one right off my head, but somebody will. And not only do you have a lot of things to choose from, lots of different flowers to choose from as long as you have full sun, you have a ton of varieties because in the last few years, 
varieties of zinnias and sunflowers, for example, have totally exploded. They have. And back in the 90s, this was a long time ago, Dee, <laughs> I grew a collection of sunflowers and I got, I don't know, like a dozen varieties and it was kind of everything that I could find. Mm-hmm. And before I knew that there were national collections in Great Britain, I had my own little national collection of sunflowers. Today, I, I bet you could find a hundred varieties of sunflowers to grow. I think you could too. You could find the type that they use for uh, cut flowers, you know, to bring inside that are pollenless. I don't. I do grow a few of those, but mostly I grow the ones with pollen for the pollinators. But um, they are great to bring inside because they don't get on. You know, the pollen doesn't get on your table, but. There you go. So you have that type. You have the type with pollen. You have types with rings around the ends, the ray of petals inside, like uh, strawberry blonde is one. Right. They go from almost white to a dark mahogany color and lots of yellows, lots of sunny sunflower yellows in between. Yeah. And uh, Botanical Interest has a packet that I got this year, and I don't have it right in front of me, but it's a red it's a bunch of red varieties, and they all come in one packet. And boy, that is a pretty, pretty collection, and I've actually grown it many times. Growing it again this year. We'll put a link to that collection on our notes in case anybody else is interested. But the other thing that's great about growing these flowers from seed? Yes. Cheap, 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 said the little birdie in the spring. <laughs> it is inexpensive. <laughs> Right, it is inexpensive. Yeah. For one thing, you're gro- you know, seeds are cheap when you consider how much you get from a packet of seeds. But also shipping is pretty cheap because shipping for plants, I just bought um an African blue ba- blue basil, say that three times fast. And I had to buy that one by I had to buy that one by a plant and yeah, the shipping's going to be kind of expensive. But if I could grow it from seed, which I read you cannot, um I I could do it a lot cheaper. I'll grow other types of basil from seed. I want that emerald right. towers, but I I can only find it a few places. But I digress. I'm sorry. We're talking about flowers. Right. So the seed varieties of flowers, um, they're great to have in the garden. They do help the pollinators. They do. They knew pollinators are needed to help the flower make seeds. So the seeds are going to be, or the flowers are going to be extra pretty to attract the pollinators. Right. Because on most wind pollinated plants, the flowers are inconsequential because they don't need to attract anybody to come in and pollinate them. And I think that's where people get really confused about some of our fall flowers because they think that when ragweed is blooming, for example, one of the most horrible weeds of all time, that, that it's goldenrod that's causing it. Well, that's not the case. So showy flowers, but not double. Single showy flowers mean lots of pollinators. Exactly. And so when you sow seeds, there's a few tips and tricks we ought to tell people when they're sowing their seeds directly in the ground. Yes. First of all, plan where you're going to put them. Right. And that's where you're going to sow them. And then put a label there so that you remember you sowed seeds. Yes. And in my case, it, I have a huge family of crows that live in my my lower pasture, which is kind of the area where I sow some of my seeds for my flowers. Um, they come in and they pull up all of my tags. It's like having small children. It is like having small children. <laughs> the, the other thing that I have done, and I I did this, and it's and it's kind of uh, it's weird if you go out and look at it. 
but I've um, sown carrot seeds and then I went out and accidentally weeded out all the carrot seedlings because I wasn't paying attention. So now I'll take like two flat stakes that are maybe like 18 inches to two feet long and I'll put them on each side of the row. And I've even written on there, do not weed between stakes to remind me that that row is there and there's something going to come up. Right. And um, because it doesn't rain here that much, also as I'm planting seeds, I take my hands and I firm the soil after I plant the seeds with my hands and I see my handprints and I go, okay, that's where I put those seeds. Because sometimes, uh, you know, I have that three, those three beds of those three raised beds out there that I just put cut my cutting garden in. Well, when I put my handprints there, it reminds me not to just go back into that row I just seeded in. <laughs> And plow them all back up because I'm notorious for weeding out my own seeds. And I'll start to do it and I'll go, oh, shoot, that's a sunflower seed or a zinnia or whatever. Well, and the funny thing is in the front garden where I have the bird feeders, I do get sunflower seedlings coming up. So I know exactly what they look like. Yeah, we've got them too. Sunflower seeds are pretty easy to spot as are zinnias. Um, carrots, yeah, sometimes it takes them a long time to come up. So soil prep is important with direct sown seed. Soil should be friable. We say that word a lot in gardening culture. It just means loose and easy to dig in. It should have small particles because you don't want to have big clumps of clay on top of your seeds because if you do, they can't get around that big clump. So make sure your soil is nice and loose on top. And remember to water them in and then to keep them watered. You don't want to flood them out, but you want to make sure that that area stays a little bit watered so that those seedlings have a chance. Yeah, because a couple of years ago, we had more rain than I've ever seen in Oklahoma in April and May. And I replanted my zinnia seeds about mm, four times before I got enough of them. And people were just really upset here because their seeds kept going all the way down the hill. Just be patient with yourselves. Um, remember that if you do get a rain flood and you see your zinnias now at the end of your bed, you know, where down the lowest part, just dig them up and transplant them and then water them in. They're pretty, what, what would you say, friendly seeds. They, they will try to grow for you. They will. And the other thing is when, when stuff comes up, if you remember what your common weeds look like, you weed those out and then you don't have to be so concerned about a new flower variety that you've never seen the seedling of. Right. Just know what your know what your weeds look like and get those out of there. Anything left is probably the flower that you wanted. Okay, and let's talk some more. And this is true of vegetable seeds too that you grow directly. Um, avoid the temptation to not thin your seedlings. I think that was my new when I was a new gardener. That was the hardest thing for me because I didn't want to kill the baby plants. Well, here's the deal: if you don't thin those seedlings, all the baby plants die. You have to take out so that they have some room. And look at your package of seeds. It'll tell you how far they should be apart. Right, because you wanted these to grow into big, healthy plants, and they're going to need some room. So there's two things you can do. If you're afraid of pulling them out and disturbing plants around them, you can just cut them off with little scissors. Mm -hmm. Or the other thing that you can do is just be careful when you're sowing the seeds and don't sow a really thick row of them, kind of spread them out so that you don't have as much to thin. 
That's easier with bigger seeds, um, like sunflowers, for example. With small seeds, it's a little bit harder. Or if you have your children helping you in the garden, and I definitely would suggest that, they are going to put all the seeds kind of in one spot because that's what they do. My sister's grandson loves to plant, and so she just lets it plant, and then she deals with it later when they all come up together. Yeah, me too. I did it for years, and I'm so glad I did. Good. Well, so now's the time to order these seeds so that you have them. The last thing we should say is all these seeds are sown. Well, we're going to get to that later. I want you to say, though, you're like a variety of zinnia you like, especially one of your favorites. I like Green Envy, <laughs> the green one. <laughs> Do you like those, um, those Queenie Lime ones then? I love those. Those are nice, too. I like all the Queenie Lime series, but that Queenie Lime, which I think is just Queenie Lime, um, it's like MV, but better, in my opinion, because it has a little little blush of pink on it. Um, my favorite, though, is Oklahoma Carmine. And for people who grow in Oklahoma, I talk about this a lot in my talks, too. The Oklahoma series of zinnias, I mean, you can grow them anywhere, not just Oklahoma, but it's kind of cool that we have them named after our state. And on top of that, they're extremely, extremely mildew resistant, which is a big deal with zinnias because they get splotchy mildew by the end of the season. Here's the thing. When they first came out with the Oklahoma series, I hated it because it had this icky yellow in it. It's just gross. But now they have separated out the colors. And my personal favorite is Oklahoma Carmine. Yes, and I would tell listeners in Indiana, Illinois, Kentucky, Ohio, any place where you grow zinnias, the Oklahoma series, um, because it's denoted they are disease-resistant for powdery mildew, is a great one to grow. They're not just for you people in Oklahoma. No, they are not. And I said that too, Carol. Did you? Yes, I did. I think you weren't paying attention. I wanted to make sure. Okay, so we have another quote. Okay, I could not find a quote for our next section, so I made up a quote, but I don't really like it. <laughs> That's funny. Okay, well, try again. I mean, go ahead and read it. Okay. The race of gardening runs from the last frost to the first frost, but we gather energy for that race in the days between the first frost and the last frost. Okay, I can see why you might not like it because I find it confusing as I'll get out. But I get what I, I think I get the point you're making. We're talking about veggies and we're talking about the two most important important days in a gardener's year. Right. And you know what those two most important days are, Dee? I do, even if it weren't written in my notes. Yes. The last frost date and the first frost date. And right now, we are longing, longing, longing for the last frost date. Right. And so once you know that day, those two days, then you kind of count the days in between, and that's your growing season. So how long is your last, I mean, when is your last frost date? That's really hard to say in Indiana. I count it as uh, May 10th. Ours is usually, if you live in central Oklahoma, around April the 20th, but it's a fairly big state. So there, you know, check your area. And everybody else that listens to us, you need to know that date. And then just bear in mind that it's your last average frost date. So sometimes you'll get a freeze after that. We've had a freeze as late as May 1st one time. And I've been frosted out on May the 25th one year. That was probably the same day that I was frosted out on May the 1st. Right. It was in the 90s. 
Yep. It made me grumpy. So. Okay. And then your last, your first frost day, I always count that as October 10th in central Indiana. I think mine's about November 8th, but I'd have to look it up. So I'm not too worried about that date right now. You count the days in between and that's the number of basically growing days you have. So I have about a hundred. Me too. Maybe a little more. You have, you probably have 130. 120. 120. I think it's 120. But anyway, it doesn't matter that much. I mean, basically the sun shines, it gets hot, things grow, you hope, with water. And then if you look at a packet of seeds, it'll tell you, um, first of all, it'll tell you if you sow it outside after the last frost or if you should start it inside before the last frost. And so that's important to know. It is important to know. It'll also tell you days to harvest from planting. And so something like watermelon might say it takes mm-hmm. 90 days from sowing to harvest, which means yeah. you're, you're probably going to want to put that in the ground almost as a seedling in Indiana as soon as you can. And the soil needs to be warm. And it's going to take all the way through to get a good watermelon if you get one of those long traditional ones, long, long growing. Yeah. And watermelon are not that easy to grow, in my opinion. Another good example would be pumpkins. If you're trying to, you know, time that pumpkin to do it by October 30, I say October 15th, then you're going to count back the days. First of all, you're going to count the days that it needs to harvest, which is usually about 90. And then you go back to the date and you need your soil. Because one of the things that gardeners make a mistake about when they're new is that soil needs to be warm, which Carol already mentioned, for a lot of these crops. So if you put in a green bean soil, green bean seed super early in your soil, there's a lot of S words in this. I'm just yes. saying. Makes it hard to say. It is not going to grow until there's enough warmth in the top layer of the soil where you plant the seed. It's true of all warm weather seeds, squash, green beans, pumpkins, watermelons, there's so many. All the squash, all the melons, right? You want, and then they talk about nighttime temperatures. And we'll get a link to an extension bulletin that describes all this. So sometimes yes. it's the daytime temperatures may be warm enough, but it's still pretty cool at night. Right. And that makes a difference. And then sometimes, like you said, it's if you're trying to germinate seeds, it's the soil temperature. So... There's a there's a lot to this and it sound we're making it sound hard. It's not that hard. You just got to read a little bit before you stick that seed in the soil. And if we're talking about plants like tomatoes, peppers, eggplant, those type of you're going to have to start the seeds indoors or by plants. And you don't want to put those plants outside until your nights are 55 degrees and higher. Um that's that's my rule of thumb. Right. And so we have managed to overcomplicate it probably a tiny bit. But like I said, yeah. we'll, we'll link to a good extension bulletin that describes this. And I think you get a couple of seasons of growing under your belt and it almost becomes second nature. Um, exactly. I don't even think about it anymore. Um, but just look at your seed packets. Look at your local extensions bulletins. It's it's really helpful. I think Botanical Interseeds also has two good planning charts, as do some other companies too. Right. So we'll put some links out there. Also, if you have a short summer, 
you need to look for varieties that mature in a short amount of time. And they are doing more and more of those varieties, especially with tomatoes. And I'm thinking of you people who are like in Colorado, for example. You have a very short season. And if you want to grow a tomato, you want one of those type of varieties. You're probably not going to grow one of the great big, huge slicers, but you can grow salad tomatoes and other more early season tomatoes. Also, I was thinking about something else to do with this, and now I can't remember what it was. Well, we always watch Gardener's World with Monty Don, and Monty grows his tomatoes <laughs> in a greenhouse in the summertime, which we laugh about. It just never gets that hot for those tomatoes to ripen really well, so that's why he right. puts them in a greenhouse. But in Oklahoma and Indiana and the Midwest and the South and pretty much anywhere except maybe up by the Pacific Northwest, We do not need greenhouses to grow tomatoes in the summertime. Right. We do not. But I saw a ton of it when I was in England because I was there in June and they had their peppers and their tomatoes and their eggplant all in a green, all in greenhouses. And they were like, you know, to them growing tomatoes, peppers, it's super hard, but here it's not. And they don't even try to grow okra. Okra is another one that needs a long, you know, a long, beautiful season. So let's introduce now, we have a new segment that we're going to insert about this time each podcast. You and I both have a ton of gardening books and we get some gardening books to review. And so we thought we'd add a little section called what's on the bookshelf. Yeah, I like this segment because a lot of times in our dirt, we also talk about books, but this is great because we want to promote really interesting books, books that we receive for review and others. So I got this book for review. It's called The Complete Book of Ferns, Indoors, Outdoors, Growing, Crafting, History and Lore by Moby Weinstein, who is a gardening foreman at the New York Botanical Garden. And D... I don't think there's a single question about ferns that anybody would have that is not answered in this book. Well, there you go. Uh, ferns, ferns are kind of iffy where I live, but I mean, we grow some. Go ahead. Well, he's got ferns for outside, but then there's a lot of this is about ferns you grow inside as houseplants. Right, which some of them I know you have to mist and some of them you don't. Right. And then he's got, and this is really interesting to me because I'm fascinated with it is the kokodama where you yes. plant you plant in a like a root ball and then it's wrapped in moss and that's the perfect thing for ferns. And we're well, going We're going to talk about that just in its entirety sometime. Yeah, kokodama is a big thing right now, especially for houseplant people. Big right. big deal. Um and you know, I think if you love ferns, grow them. It's yes. they're beautiful and I really love them native maidenhair ferns that we have in the United States. I grow those outside and edge some of my shade beds with them, but you can also grow them inside if you have the right conditions. Right, and I have I have the native maidenhair ferns in my garden and you're right. They're they're really nice and I I love ferns and I love them inside and out. I don't have any inside right now, but I'm pretty certain that I will soon have some ferns, D. I'm pretty certain. Yeah, because you got that book. <laughs> I know. So anyway, it's, it's from um, Cool Springs Press, I think. No. Yes, Cool yeah. Springs Press. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Came, came out this year. Right. And it's lovely. And I, um, you know, we don't always keep every book we get to review, but this one is not leaving my shelf. It, does it have beautiful pictures? I don't have it. 
it has beautiful pictures. And I don't know, maybe I'm attracted to it because ferns are all about green. And, you know, I'm in love with the color green. And I just, I just love the look of ferns. You, dev you do love the look of ferns. That's true. Right. And I remember last spring when I went to New Orleans, they have tree ferns that actually grow on the branches of the live oaks down there. Yeah. It's cool. That's all I know. That's all I'm saying. It is cool. cool. It's very cool. So anyway, The Complete Book of Ferns just got published by Moby Weinstein of the New York Botanical Garden. Very nice book. That's really cool. So speaking of ferns, they like dirt. Everybody likes dirt. We got some dirt. No. Some of my children do not like dirt, in spite of me. But we will go on. So we're, we're now at our dirt now. So or, organic soil enhancers, Carol. Yes. You and I had a very similar experience on the same weekend, uh, you know, however many thousand miles apart we are. We were both introduced to organic soil enhancers with pretty pretty substantial claims about what they could do to improve your soil and thus improve your garden. Right. Um, you know, that. first of all, these are like the natural version of that stuff that's supposed to create miracles in your garden, the chemical one, which I won't say its name. These are the organic ones. And um, I found the ingredients to mine. So liquid dirt is mine. Yours is a different brand. And liquid dirt, I'm going to read the ingredients to people so they have an idea. It comes in this little pouch, and the little pouch is powdery inside. And so first thing you have to do is wet the ingredients and let them sit for 24 hours so that all the ingredients make this slurry, all right? And then you pour, supposedly, two capfuls of this slurry into a gallon of water, or maybe it's one capful, and it's a little tiny cap. I am trying it on my houseplants because I figure it can't hurt anything. Here's what's in it. Poultry litter. Poultry litter, for those who don't know, is chicken poop mixed with whatever the chickens are nesting in. Well, they don't poop in their nests, but on the floor. Right. Rabbit, rabbit manure, bat guano, cricket scat. I don't know where they found cricket scat. Worm castings, humic shale, mycorrhizae, oyster shell, dolomite lime, z, alfalfa meal, blood meal, kelp meal, gypsum, and concentrated fulvic acid. So these are pretty great ingredients. I don't know that all those ingredients, you know, in a liquid form is going to make a huge difference, but I'm going to give it a try. He has lots of testimonials, and I figure it won't hurt anything. And my houseplants are happy. I've used it a couple of times on them. Right. Um, one thing I was going to say is that on my roses, I do use alfalfa meal on my roses outside, and I've used some of these other things too, like worm castings. I've never used cricket scat. I mean, I don't know where you'd find it. So I'll let you know. Well, the cricket scat, I would call it cricket frass. Because right. is insect poop. And I actually saw an episode of Dirty Jobs with Mike Rowe where yeah. he, went, he went to a place in Georgia where they raised crickets that were sold then for bait. Okay. But one of the byproducts was all the frass, and they oh were bagging that stuff up and selling that to gardeners, and it was almost as profitable, if not more profitable, than selling the crickets. Right, because people are always looking for ways to improve their soil. And, of course, that would be, it would improve it with nitrogen. 
But I anyway, assume. that's it's poop. That's where they would get that. Okay, well, so, it's good to know that because I didn't. I really didn't know we had cricket farms. Silly me. I cannot imagine how disgusting of a job that would be. Yuck. So I talked to a guy who had a product called Organic Growth Burst, which they refer to as a soil enhancer, and I believe that it contains some bacteria and fungi and other things that is, as they claim, non-toxic, right. non-hazardous, non-caustic, soil enhancer, safe for plants, people, and pets. I do not know what it is in it, but it does say it contains molasses to feed the bacteria and other lo- living organisms, and it is a bottle of liquid. And you're supposed to dilute it in water and then apply it to your soil as, once the soil is a certain temperature. And then all that micro goodness gets down in there and makes the soil better. And there's some there's some debate about mycorrhizae and other soil enhancers out there. And part of it is that your soil, your soil outside, has its own mycorrhizae. And are we introducing a different type of mycorrhizae that would not naturally be in your soil, et cetera, et cetera. I am not a soil scientist. We have some friends who are. But I think you should look on uh, good university studies. Now, I don't think there's a thing in liquid dirt that will hurt anything. It's mostly uh, varieties of nitrogen, and I just don't think it's going to hurt anything. <laughs> so it's I'm not worried about it. I, I don't, you know, I'm not worried about either one of them, really. But I, do they work? Are they worth the money? That's the thing. Do they work? Are they worth the money? Um, And there are, as you said, lots of testimonials of people who said how wonderful their garden grew. But if you really want to know the truth of the matter, you do need to look at university studies. And um, they, they would do more controlled testing with and without the product in a more controlled environment so that they could say that the one difference was these products and that made a difference or it didn't make a difference. So anyway. Right. And one of our favorite sources is Washington State University Extension, where Dr. Linda Chalker Scott dispelled many myths. And she she is still dispelling myths. And she's also on Facebook under the, is it the Garden Professor's Facebook page? The Garden Professor's Facebook page, which is a great place to go and ask a question about a study or a scientific. Don't ask them to ID a plant or anything crazy like that, but they will take questions. (laughs) Um, yeah. and refer you to answers if they've already answered it. Yeah, they will. And they might use, if you have something that's new, they might use it in a future study. You just don't know. Um, she's come out with some really good good information in the past that we've actually used on this podcast. Right. So that's our dirt, which was really about dirt this time. Or at least dirt enhancers or dirt fertilizers. Right. We would like to thank everyone for listening to The Garden Angelus. If you like our podcast, please tell your friends about us. And if you listen on Apple Podcasts, we'd love a review, a five-star review. That helps us get noticed by others. Yes, and be sure and check out our show notes for links for information about today's topics, plus links to our own websites. It was lovely to chat with you over the garden gate today. Bye until next week. Bye.